true and in accord with reality. And uh, that, that video right there is a promo video originally designed to promote a theology book by Pastor Joshua Harris called Dug Down Deep. Uh, it's a pretty good book from what I hear. Uh, but we showed it because it encapsulates a lot of what we want to encourage you in, uh, in inviting you all to participate with me in studying theology together. And class started today. Uh, I, think, I think those who were in it had a lot of fun, heard some music, saw some art, uh, learned about uh, the worldview that underlies a lot, of, um, a lot of what people say and do. Um, if you want a, a taste of, the, uh, of some of the things we talked about, we talked about um, everything from Pablo Picasso to John Lennon and I am the walrus, and uh, a lot of things in between, and how, uh, how life fits together uh, for us as people as we understand who God is and what he is like. Uh, at this time, by the way, Children's Church is dismissed. And let me, before I get too far into this, uh, if you have a child who is age four through, up through going into third grade this fall, uh, they're eligible for Children's, children's Church. So um, we're going to be studying over the next uh, 11 weeks uh, a whole host of important topics about what God is like and what Jesus came to do and how to live as a Christian, and what the end of history and the eternal state will be like. And the goal in all of that is not simply to fill up our heads, but it's to come to know God in more depth, that we might worship Him more faithfully, and follow Him more fully, and love Him more completely, and talk with others about Him more clearly. And so I want you to come. Even if you haven't been to Sunday school in a while, in fact, Especially if you haven't been to Sunday school in a while, uh, if you have child, if you have childcare needs and you're committed to coming, uh, see me or see Michelle Stouffer. Michelle, if you shoot your hand up right there, uh, we'll make sure it's available for you. Uh, be there next Sunday at nine, uh, as well as at the worship service later, and we'll have a lot of fun together. So, um, study your theology with your pastor. It'll be a fun time. Uh, Today we're going to be in Exodus chapter 20, and we're only going to look at six verses in that chapter. Chapter 20 is the Ten Commandments, and we're going to look at just the prologue and the first two of those ten. Uh, we're going to take our time going through these because I don't think, honestly, that there has ever been a time in our nation's history when an understanding of the law and of God's holiness has ever been more needed. Uh, pluralism is the order of the day, both religious and moral. Pluralism is the belief that all religions and all moral choices, with perhaps very few exceptions, is, are all more or less valid options. You know, you've maybe heard this. Uh, the Japanese have an expression that there are many paths up to, Mount, up to the top of Mount Fuji, but they all meet at the summit. Or maybe you've heard the, the old uh, parable out of the, the Indian subcontinent, variously attributed to the Hindus or to the Jains or to other religious groups, and they, it's about six blind men from a village who meet an elephant 
for the first time. And one man described an elephant as being like a wall, and another like a tree branch, another like a pipe, another like a rope, another like a huge fan, another like a pillar. And they were all right, except that they were all wrong, um, because one was touching the elephant's side, and one was touching his trunk, and one his tusk, and one his tail, and one his ear, and one his leg. And morally, in our culture, we all adopt the same idea, uh, perhaps expressed in a different way than the parable. You know, we have uh, a singer like Sheryl Crow who sings, If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad, right? Um, Or maybe you hear someone who is more enthusiastic about the whole thing. Again, my favorite quote of all time, David Crosby from Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, let your freak flag fly, right? Uh, That is religious pluralism. That is the ethos of our day and of our culture. But one thing is certain these days, and that is this that no one is granted the right to tell anyone else what to believe or how to live. And to do that is to be intolerant and narrow-minded and perhaps a bigot. In fact, the only sin that exists is, is that of being judgmental or condemnatory Towards someone else's choices. Amen? Now, bearing all that in mind, can I just say this? Can I just go on record right here and say this? That the God of the Bible is absolutely and completely and fully opposed to every aspect and permutation of that idea. That there is a right and there is a wrong. And there is a God who is the standard and definition of those concepts. And it is to Him we will all have to one day give account. Amen? And the Bible, when you read it, if you read the law as a member in good standing of our culture, and you believe this kind of religious and moral pluralistic idea What reading the law in Exodus chapter 20 is like is like being dead asleep and having someone wake you up by pouring a bucket of ice water on your face. Okay, that is what this is like because this is completely opposed to every pluralistic idea that we might have of a God who sets a standard and who is the standard of right and wrong, of right worship and wrong worship, of right moral choices and wrong moral choices, of a right way to order society and a wrong way to order society. And of a God who not only erects and embodies that standard, but a God who calls people to account in judgment on the basis of that standard. And so if you've got your Bible, I want you to go with me to Exodus chapter 20 and see some of the things that God declares are best for us because He loves us and He hates evil and He knows that evil, if we choose it, will destroy us. 
And He wants us, because He loves us, to live in relationship with Him and to abide by His commandments, not because He is narrow and rigid and hard-nosed, but because He loves us and He does not want us to destroy ourselves with the choices that we make. And so, if you got your Bible open, here, look with me at verses 1 and 2, chapter 20. And God spoke all these things, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, I want you to remember where we are, uh, what the context is and the background to this. Remember, uh, Exodus chapter 9, or 19, rather, uh, Moses has set a perimeter all around Mount Sinai. And he has told people, now don't get too close, because unholy people cannot enter into the presence of, of a holy God. Don't touch the mountain. Do not go beyond the perimeter. But nonetheless, God wants to draw them near. And then he comes down from heaven. Because God does not dwell on this earth. He does not dwell in temples made by human hands. He does not live here like one of the pagan gods, you know, like Zeus up on a mountain somewhere. He's got to come down to be in the presence of his people. And when he descends, it is an awesome sight. There is fire and smoke and the blowing of a trumpet announcing his arrival uh, from somewhere out of heaven. This trumpet blows and it gets louder and louder and louder and louder and there's lightning and fire and clouds and smoke and thick darkness that descends and people are scared motherless. In fact, that's what the text says later in chapter 20. I'm paraphrasing. But nevertheless, they are terrified when God shows up because God in His holiness is absolutely frightening to an unholy person. And then he speaks from the mountain these words. Listen to what he says. He says, I am the Lord your God. You know, I think a lot of times people get confused when they, when they come to the law and that what they see is all these rules that are given to people and they think, well, these people had to keep all these rules in order to be in relationship with God. No, that's not true. They had to keep the rules in order to be in fellowship with God. They were already in relationship with God. You remember? How did they come into relationship with God? By faith in the blood of the Lamb shed on Passover night. Remember? God said, sacrifice a lamb at twilight and put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and roast the lamb and eat it. Because tonight is the night you are being redeemed. These are people who were already saved, in other words, who were recipients of the law. They had already received salvation by God's grace through faith in the sacrifice that God had provided for them. So these are things which help them to enjoy a relationship with God they already possess. These are not things to enter into that relationship, but things that are meant to help them to facilitate that relationship as it's ongoing. And God introduces himself again to his people. Imagine this, you know. We, sometimes at church we'll do this, you know, we'll come down and we'll be like, Hi, I'm Joe. Nice to meet you, Spencer. Nice to meet you, Laura. Glad you're here this morning, right? And 
This is one of the dangers sitting in the front. This is why nobody does that. All right. So, uh, but, uh, and we'll introduce ourselves to each other, right? God introduces himself, and people are stunned and terrified. And look at how he does. He starts off, he says, I am the Lord your God. Now, you can't see it, but in Hebrew, it's really interesting. You've got a verb and a noun. I am. And then you've got another noun that's a form of the same verb. Okay? Because God uses as his name the same verb that, me, that means to exist. By the way, this is the same thing that he says to Moses out of the bush on this same mountain. Remember? He says, what's your name? Moses says, I'm going to have to tell people who met me on the mountain. What do I say? And he says, tell them, I am that I am. And it's two forms of the same word, hava, meaning to be or to exist. So in other words, I am not, it's translated the Lord, but it's Yahweh, okay? Hava Yahweh, right? That, in other words, I am that I am your God. The God who exists, the living and powerful God, I am. The God who, doesn't, who didn't come into existence, that the God who always exists in the eternal present, that God is your God. And on top of that, he says, I am your God. Now, this is going to be one for your, if you're a grammarian, you're going to understand immediately what I'm saying, okay? When he says your God, he uses the second person singular form of the word your. Okay? In other words, he is not saying, I am, now let me slip into Texas for a second. I am the God of y'all. Okay? He is saying, I am Rick's God, and Debbie's God, and Joe's God, and Rob's God, and Michelle's God, and Mark's God, and Janet's God. In other words, I saved you, and I am the God of each of you individually. Not just the God of Israel as a nation, but, as a, but the God of every person within it. He is the God of Robert and Joseph and Katie and Sarah and Abraham and Levi. He is the God of each individual within the nation. And as individuals within that nation, they are redeemed from slavery, each one of them. And he is their God. And by the way, that is still true. God redeems individuals. Belonging to a group which includes the people of God is not enough. Amen? God only has individual personal relationships with individual people. God has no grandchildren. So you can't say, well, my grandfather or my dad was a preacher, and therefore I'm in. Right? Or my uncle was a Methodist once. Okay? And so therefore, pretty sure I'm in the people of God. No. No. God has no grandchildren. He has no extended family. He is a father and he has children. And that's it. And friend of status doesn't create relationship with God either. 
Well, I'm good friends with the pastor. He took me fishing. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Uh, you don't have a relationship with God by osmosis. All right? You have a relationship with God because of a personal commitment by grace through faith. Amen? Uh, God is your God because He saved you. He saves us together, but He only saves one at a time. Now let's read on. The first commandment together. Uh, Verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. Now that seems pretty simple on the surface, right? Uh, If you look at it in reality, though, it is not so simple. Let's deal with the word before me first. Is God using before, let me ask you a question, is God using the word before there to indicate where he falls on the priority list? In other words, you can have a lot of other things that you pursue, but I need to be first, right? You can have a lot of other, you know, gods and stuff that you devote a lot of time and energy and worship to, but, you know, I need to be first among equals on that list. You know, you need to really put me first, and then your family, and then the church, and then your job, or however you organize the list, but I'm first on that list. Is that what God is saying? Let me give you a hint. No. (laughs) That's not what God is saying. All right? The consistent teaching of the Bible is that no other gods before me means no other gods in my presence. No other gods before my face. Now, this is a real problem, because where is God? Everywhere, exactly. So, does it it mean that I can have a little idol off somewhere in a closet? No. Why? Because that is before the face of God. Can I have one in my heart? No, because my heart exists before the face of God. Can I have some little remote village in some mountaintop somewhere where I worship my idol there? No. Because as Psalm 139 says, if I fly on the wings of the dawn, you are there. When I rise up, when I lie down, you are there. Every place, including inside of each person, is before the face of God. Every place in this universe exists in God's presence. And so God says, nowhere are you allowed to have some other deity. You know, when Karen and I got married, um, one of the things that I wanted to do was communicate to her that there was nothing competing in my love for her. Now, I was a guy that had um, had a number of girlfriends prior to getting married to Karen. I'm not proud of that. That's just reality, okay? Uh, if I had it to do over again, I would not do that, honestly. I would look for her, and when I found her, put a ring on her hand on the first week, all right? But, uh, but I had a lot of girlfriends prior to that. And so when we got married, what I did was um, I took this box of stuff, all these letters and flowers and other stuff, you know, that you accumulate in a dating relationship with somebody. And I took it with us in the car on our honeymoon. Now, that might seem weird, but wait until I tell you the rest of the story. Okay? 
we stayed for part of our honeymoon in a little log cabin in the mountains of Tennessee. And one great thing about log cabins is that they all have a fireplace. And one night, with Karen, I built a fire. And I threw all that stuff in there a little at a time. Why? Because there are no other competing women in my life with her. There is nothing else that is allowed to be before her face. Amen? You burn your ships when you land. All right? So there's no going back. And being in relationship with God is the same commitment, that there are no other competing gods in a relationship with God. This is God's law, not only because everything else a person might worship isn't a real God, that it is at best a sinful inclination elevated to supremacy in your life, but at worst it could be a demon. Lots of the things that people worship, by the way, in the world, they are spiritual realities. They are spiritual beings, in fact. But they are demons rather than the living God. It's also God's law because worshiping anything else, anything else, will bring destruction into your life. And it does not matter what it is. If it's anything else other than God, it will bring destruction into your life. Let me be clear. There's still more to the obeying this commandment, and I want to give you several interpretive rules. You might want to write these down for interpreting the law in general, but this one in specific we'll apply it to. First, there's the biblical rule. You know, a lot of people know that as Christians, we um, have been set free, in a sense, from obedience to the law because Jesus Christ kept the law for us. So are we to uh, are we to obey this? And the answer is, well, look at your Bible. And if this command that God gives here is affirmed and explained in the New Testament, then it applies and we have to obey it. Now, did Jesus say it was okay to worship any other gods? No. Did, did Paul say that? No. Did John say that? No. Did any of the gospel writers say that? No. Did any of the epistle writers say that? No. In fact, they consistently affirm that this is true, right? And they go on to explain what that means. In fact, even in the passage that Mark read this morning as he prayed, we see that affirmed over and over and over, a rejection of idolatry. Uh, in fact, we don't just worship the I am who spoke from the mountain in fire and smoke. We worship the I am who spoke from the mountain and called us to be his disciples. Amen? And there is no other God. Uh, second, the second interpretive rule you might apply to these is what's called the inside-outside rule. Okay? All of man's laws, whatever they are, all that they try to do is to tell you what you can do with your hands or with your mouth or with your body. And they say, this is okay, this is not okay. You know what God's law does? It's not enough to simply obey externally. You have to obey 
internally also. So it can't be just that I don't worship an idol on the outside. I can't worship one on the inside either because as God told the prophet Samuel, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so therefore, outward conformity is not sufficient to obey God on this. Another uh, rule is the two-sided rule. And that is that God's law here is usually stated in the negative. Don't do this. But there is a flip side of the coin that is implied. In other words, it's not enough to simply not bow down to an idol. We also need to love and adore and bow down before, as we sang, the living and true God. So there's a, both a negative uh, command as well as a positive expectation that we're going to do what God requires as well as avoid what he forbids. See how the law just kind of gets higher and higher, higher and higher, the more you analyze it? Another rule is the category rule. And you'll see this more as we fill out the rest of the the Ten Commandments. But uh, each law that addresses a particular issue addresses a category of sins, not simply that particular sin in specific. So as an example, where it says, thou shalt not commit adultery. There's a lot of things that are subsumed under that category. So in other words, you can't look at that and go, oh, well, uh, so extramarital relationships are prohibited, but premarital relationships, oh, that's all okay. No, not according to the Scriptures. It's just identifying one of the most destructive forms of sin in that category. And then we're expected to be intelligent enough to be able to fill in some of the details underneath. And in fact, the Scripture doesn't even let us do that. It fills in a lot of the details underneath for us so that we understand that this is just identifying one thing in a category of sin and perhaps the most destructive example of it, but not the only part of it, not the only thing we have to obey. Again, it ratchets the obedience to the law higher as we look at it. Another one is the rule of love, which means that whatever obedience to the law looks like, it ought to result in greater love for God and for our fellow human being. That if we are obeying it in such a way that does not produce that outcome, we're not really obeying it. Amen? All right. Uh, And this commandment, this is the last thing I'm going to say on this before we move on. This commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, is probably, if we want to look at it, the most important one in all of the law. Because if you really analyze the rest of the Ten Commandments, what you see is that every other law is in some sense a further explanation of this and a further example and clarification of this. So as an example... Is it possible to commit adultery without 
violating the first commandment? No. Because the instant that you do, what you have done is elevated that relationship and that activity that goes along with it over your relationship with God, and you have made it into an idol. And you have violated not just that commandment, but also the first one, to have no other gods before me. Is it possible to covet and still be cool with the first commandment? No, it's not. Why? Because you have elevated the possession of stuff over your relationship with God. How about murder? Fill in the blank. Pick whichever one you want. Whatever it is, if it's sin, it's not just that sin. It's also a violation of the first commandment not to have any other gods before me because every kind of sin is, in a sense, idolatry, not least because we enthrone ourselves as God instead of God. Let's move on. I want to look at verses 4 through 6. You shall not make yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord, for I the Lord your God am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, here's what God is saying in this, that it's not enough to worship the Lord and Him alone as God. You also have to worship God for who He really is. And how do we know who He really is? By reading and understanding the Scriptures. Because in the Scriptures, God reveals Himself and tells us things about how He really exists. And a human temptation is always to try to bring God down to a level we can get hold of Him. And so... The first commandment forbids worshiping false gods, and this one forbids false worship of the true God. Doing anything else is a violation of the first commandment as well as the second. And so the Israelites are not to make anything, make, it, make God out to be anything in all of creation, because God exists before and independent of creation and he is not like anything else in it. Amen? And so, in, in the ancient world, people did this all the time. So they didn't necessarily, you know, they, they created, you know, as an example, in Egypt, they created Horus, who was a man with the head of a falcon. And, you know, they created Anubis, who was, you know, looked like a man with the head of a jackal, and so forth, right? And they had gods that looked like things in creation, and God says, I'm not like that. I'm not like anything created. I made the creation, but I'm not like anything in it. And the reason that people did this is not because they believed, you know, a lot of people mistakenly believe that, well, when someone bows down to an idol, that they think that, that God lives in there, like that he animates the statue. And that's not what ancient people believed. They believed in what's called sympathetic magic, okay? And sympathetic magic is like this, that 
that when I make an image of the God that I believe in, that what I do with it enables me to control and manipulate that deity for my own benefit. Right? So I offer sacrifices to this thing, and that, that, then, that then manipulates the God into doing what I want. So I pray to this thing, I offer sacrifices to it, and then the God that exists behind that thing has to do what I ask. Right? And God is not like that. Does God answer prayer? Say yes. <laughs> okay. He does. He answers prayer. Okay? You want a good example of how God answers prayer? Carol Mulvaney is sitting back in the back right there. We've been praying for her. Her cancer is in remission. Okay? God answers prayer. Amen? God answers prayer. Is God required to do what we want because we prayed? No. And see, God is wanting with this thing to not only teach them what kind of God He is and how to worship Him, but He's also trying to forbid them from thinking that He is like one of these statues that you can somehow get control of Him and bring Him down to your level and manipulate and have power over Him. Because you can't. You can't do that. And on top of that, God is the God of greater majesty and glory. And any attempt to make an image or a statue to represent Him inevitably falls short because He is bigger and more majestic, and more powerful and more amazing than anything that you can invent for yourself. And on top of that, it is God who makes us into his image bearers, not the other way around. And significantly, in the God-man, Jesus Christ, God's image was perfectly present, right? Colossians 1.15 says it this way, He is the image of the invisible God. In a very similar passage, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Or as Jesus tells Thomas, or not Thomas, I'm sorry, Philip, in a conversation, you know, Philip says, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Right? And Jesus says, Philip, have I been with you so long that you do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. In other words, you want an image of who God is? Look at Jesus, the only image that God provided that we might worship. But making anything else out to be God is sin and it's evil. Now, if you walk through those interpretive rules I gave you above, uh, what you see is that this command includes not just being forbidden to make and bow down to idols in specific. It also means that mere outward conformity to worshiping God is not sufficient. Lots of people do that, you know. They come to church, maybe they get brought to church as a kid, or they... Um, 
you know, they feel like, well, I really ought to go to church. I really ought to show up and do something, I guess, and so I'll, I'll make my appearance this week. But it's not a matter of the heart. It's a matter of just outward obedience. And then in doing that, they are speaking incorrectly, thinking incorrectly, worshiping incorrectly about the God of the Bible and the God who is really there. You can't erect an idol in your heart out of anything in creation. You can't have another person or an idea or an object or even a concept like marriage or family or love that you build up and are willing to sacrifice everything in your relationship with God for that. I've known a lot of uh, young people over the years who will do just that as an example. They want to get married. They want to be in love. They want to be loved and cared for by somebody else. And so what they'll do is they'll sacrifice God's standards for what kind of person they ought to marry and what kind of person they ought to be and how the relationship ought to proceed and so forth on the altar of a false god that they have erected called Mary. And they'll say, well, I want to get married, and so it doesn't really matter that I'm marrying someone who doesn't know God. Or I want to be in love, and so I will give up my body to this person, even though God says that's evil. And even though God says that won't be blessed, and even though God says that that's sin, I'm going to do it anyway because I have this idol in my heart that I worship over and above God. And I see it all the time. And you know what happens? Destruction follows. And it's miserable. Miserable. And you can do that with any number of things. I just happen to pick on that one because I have a friend who's doing that right now. And it pains me to see. And it also means that you can't tailor your worship of God to a God that suits your desires. And sometimes you hear people do this. Well, I don't believe in a God like that. You ever hear anybody say that? By the way, that is one of the stupidest, most rebellious things you can possibly say. Okay? Because what does it matter what you believe about who God is? Answer, it doesn't. What does matter a great deal is what kind of God is there. And if he is there, he has a nature and a will and a character and a, a, a set of characteristics totally independent of what you believe. Amen? It's like saying, I don't believe in gravity. Well, let's go up to the top of the building and jump off and see if it happens. Okay? Uh, what you believe is going to be totally irrelevant to the sudden deceleration at the end of that jump, right? We'll have 911 on speed dial. It'll be fine. All right. But what we believe about God does not matter. What is true about God matters a great deal. And so God is saying, you have to worship me how I really am. 
not how you want me to be. And look how God describes himself. This is a hard one for people. He says, I am a jealous God. And jealousy gets a lot of a bad rap in our culture, but God's jealousy is not like the insane, possessive jealousy of a needy human being. You ever been in a relationship with somebody who was jealous? It's like you want to get away from them as fast as possible, <laughs> right? Um, if they're jealous like that, you know, where they don't trust you to go to the grocery store on your own, like, <laughs> you know, you go, really? <laughs> you know, I've been going to the grocery for a while. I, I think I can handle it, you know. Uh, I don't need you with me. I don't need you to check up on what I did while I was there, right? Um, you see people like that sometimes. But when God says he is jealous, he doesn't mean that. He means that he is protective, that he has strong, caring devotion. Like, how many of you dads, if you knew that tonight there was going to be a home invasion, would just go to bed and go to sleep? None of you. Not if you have an ounce of manhood about you. You wouldn't do that. You'd call the police, and you'd sit up with the 12-gauge across your lap. You would, okay? Very effective, right? Why? Because you are jealous for the safety and protection of your family. And they belong, they, they are, they, you are their father. You are the husband in that house. And you are jealous for them. And you're going to protect them. And you're not going to allow anything in that's going to hurt them. And so God says, I'm jealous about what kind of worship I receive because any other kind is going to hurt you. And he says that he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but shows steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Let me explain that. It's a poetic way of describing God's complete justice against those who rebel against God. And also his complete and faithful love to everyone who loves him and obeys him. And in obedience demonstrates their love for him. Remember what Jesus said? If you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. Right? Loving God is not divorced from keeping the commandments. It is integral to it. Now, just so you know, this actually does, in some sense, literally take place. Right? When Israel went into exile, it was not to the fourth generation they came out. But when they came out, Israel was no longer a people who hated God and worshipped idols. Post-exile, Israel had a lot of problems, but one of them was not that they worshipped other gods. They never had that problem again. God dealt with that sin until it was eradicated. Now, this bit about, a, about thousands, I think it should read a thousand generations. That's the parallel. Okay, Thirty generations will get you back a thousand years, by the way. There have not been on this planet a thousand generations of human beings. Ever. To this day. So when God says, I show steadfast love to a thousand generations, what's he saying? Forever. 
okay, like the Sandlot, forever, right? Uh, they, they, it's forever that God shows steadfast love, that he never falls down, he never fails, he never quits, all right? Now, um, I will be completely faithful, he says, to everyone who loves me and obeys me. Here's the bottom line. Here's what God wants us to understand out of this text, that we are to worship him, and we are to worship only him, and we are to worship him according to his revelation. In, in other words, in, according to how he reveals himself to be, and in no other way that we invent for ourselves. There's no way to have a relationship with God in which you have any competitors to that relationship whether material things or spiritual realities. And you can't invent for yourself some set of characteristics that you think God should have and call it worshiping Him. To do that is to hate God rather than love and obey Him. And God's complete judgment is going to be on your head if you do that. And so you've got to worship the right God in the right way. That's the point. Worship the right God in the right way as he reveals it to us. How do we know that? You know, how do we, how do, we do that? Let me give you three things here real quickly. First of all, you need to believe the gospel that you might enter into a relationship with God. If you're going to worship the right God in the right way, then you're going to have to enter into a relationship with him. Because God cannot and does not and will not receive worship from those who are not his followers and his family. And so you need to believe the gospel. What's the gospel message? It's real simple. That Jesus Christ is the incarnate Son of God. In other words, God in the flesh. Who, uh, who came to earth, lived a perfect life, died a perfect death for your sin and was raised from the dead to give you new life. That's the gospel message. That's the heart of it. And when you believe that by grace, through faith, when you um, receive God's gift by trusting in that message, then you enter into a relationship with the God of the universe, the God who is there, the God of the Bible. And then you are able to obey God. And as you obey God, you are worshiping Him. Now, none of you are going to be able to keep this perfectly. I'm not able to keep it perfectly. In fact, part of the purpose of all the commandments in the Scriptures is specifically that, to point out that we need Jesus, and we need to believe the gospel, and we need to receive it. Uh, but when we trust in the Savior, we receive redemption and we enter into a relationship with God. And then we're empowered by the Holy Spirit to obey God and keep His commandments with all our hearts. Second thing, study the Word that you might understand God. You know, the little video we, we showed points this out, but it's also true um, that if you get married... Or if even if you just have a good friend. One of the things you're going to do in that relationship with that person is you're going to study him or her intensely. And you're going to find out what they like and what they don't like. And you're going to find out what makes them tick 
and what kind of person they are and how they like their coffee or even if they like coffee, what kind of music they like, what they, how, how they want to be, um, how, what the kind of things they like to do with you, etc. How do you find that stuff out about God? You open this book and you read it and you study it and you apply it to your life. Amen? Uh, we don't study the words so we can have stuff in our heads, but so that we can fill our hearts with the knowledge of the living God. Last thing, you want to obey the word, all right? And that you might actually love and worship God. We don't study in order to learn about God. That is not the point. As Soren Kierkegaard said, it is one thing to stand on one leg and prove the existence of God. It is entirely another to go down on your knees and thank Him. And we don't study the Word of God so we can be smarter sinners. Amen? That's not the point. The point of Bible study is a transformed life. And we study the Word together like we do every week here, like we do in Sunday school, like we do in Awana, like we do everything else that we do has a Word-centered component. Have you ever wondered why? It's because by studying the Word, we learn how to obey God. And then by obeying God, we are able to better love and worship God. And true worship involves bowing your life, not just your knees, to the supremacy of Christ. Amen? So let's bow our life before Him right now. God, our Heavenly Father, we do thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the commandments. Because the commandments are good if you use them in a good way. And the law is wonderful for pointing us to You and what kind of God You are and what You require of us. And pointing out also how far, how, how far short we fall of meeting it and keeping it and how much we need you to be the Savior who sent Jesus Christ to redeem. And Father, we thank you for redemption. We thank you that through him we are able to obey you and worship you and love you fully. And Father, we pray that we would do so more and more in Jesus' name. Amen.